Good morning, everyone, and welcome to That Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Shepard, and today we're going to talk about the evidence for the God of the Bible. Before we start, I just want to make it clear to everyone that the point of this episode is not to convert people to Christianity. Rather, it's to explain why I believe in the God of the Bible and to give the evidence and arguments for his existence. A lot of people have this idea that faith means to believe in something that there is no proof of. My friends, that is called blind faith. Faith is trusting in something that you can't see based off of the evidence that you have for its existence. A lot of people, honestly, wouldn't believe in God if there was no proof for his existence. If there was no proof of God, then you could say that you believe in a flying spaghetti monster, and that would be equally as possible. And I think most of us can say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there is no flying spaghetti monster. There are three main arguments that I'm going to touch on that are made to explain the existence of God. They're called the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, and the moral argument. To show the existence of God through the observation of the natural world. There's a law in nature, known as the law of cause and effect, or the law of causality. This law pretty much states that everything that happens must have an adequate original cause. For example, if I was to grab a book and toss it on the floor, it wouldn't ping off the floor, hit the wall, and kill Aunt Sally. That effect simply does not have an adequate cause. The leading cosmological scientists say that the universe was caused by a microscopic piece of matter that exploded and expanded rapidly, thus creating our universe. The main problem with this argument, though, is that in this argument, the universe had to have created itself. As we know, things cannot simply exist. This idea is known as spontaneous generation and was debunked many years ago in an experiment that involved steak and maggots. Where did this microscopic piece of matter come from is another question that many people ask. Scientists don't yet have an answer for that. On the other hand, the Bible explains in Genesis chapter 1 that God created the earth and everything on it in six days. He started by making the light that separates the day and the night, and he separated heaven and earth. He made the physical earth and covered it in water and added some land and plants and animals, people, and everything that exists. An extreme power like that of God an all-powerful being, is an adequate cause to the effect of the creation of the universe. I think that some people spend so much time trying to rally around the fact that they don't want to believe in God than looking at the arguments that are before them. This is a little bit of a side tangent that I'm going to go on. But there are so many people I've met, atheists specifically, who shut down conversation right away. The moment that you propose the idea that God exists and created the universe is the minute that they have a problem with you. Now, I'm not talking about those atheists who want to start a fight and shout all the time, God's not real, this, that, and the other thing. I'm not talking about those atheists. I'm talking about the atheists that have this idea, I'm okay with you as long as you don't talk about your religion. You can believe what you want to believe, but you can't express that belief. I believe what I believe based upon evidence, based upon reasoning and fact. I don't believe what I believe because it makes me feel good. And I'm not saying believing in God because the idea of God brings you comfort is an invalid reason to believe in God. Absolutely not. 
what I am saying is that if your entire belief is surrounded upon the fact that God makes you have nice feelings, people aren't going to take you very seriously. Especially people who disagree with you. People who agree with you won't take you seriously either, for that matter. I think being able to defend what you believe is important, and I think the cosmological argument is one that makes sense. Scientists believing that this tiny bit of matter, I don't remember who it was, but one of the leading cosmological scientists quoted was quoted as saying that the amount of matter that originally caused the Big Bang was so small that it was literally nothing. Literally Could you imagine something that is literally nothing creating a massive universe? And like I said earlier, where did that literally nothing piece of matter even come from? What was the original creation of that matter? These are all questions that science doesn't have an answer for. But the Bible, as I explained, does have an answer for it. The Bible explains everything. It explains in Genesis chapter 1. Here, I'll, I'll flip over there. I will flip over there right now. Pardon me. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. That is just the, that is the first chapter, the first four or five verses of the first chapter of the first book in the Bible. And it already explains creation, how everything came to be. We go through six days, six different days of creation, explaining how things are made. And I think the fact that we have a book that explains how everything was created with a cause that makes enough sense for everything to have been created is a very valid argument. And I think people need to take some time to look at it and to evaluate the facts. Teleological is kind of a difficult word to say. Um, but the teleological argument, if you boil it down to its basics, is pretty much the idea that since the universe shows purposeful design, there must have been an original designer to create those things. For example, if you look at Mount Rushmore, it's clear that the structure was designed by a designer, someone with a purpose for creating it in mind. It didn't just develop on its own, unlike something like the Grand Canyon. If you were to walk along the beach, for example, and you saw a MacBook, you wouldn't th think that it had just materially existed. You wouldn't think that it elements had combined to create that MacBook. I mean, no amount of time or elements or anything of that nature would be able to create a MacBook in its entirety on its own. There was a person who created it and it was put there for a reason. The MacBook has a clear purpose for being created. It's not only theists who believe that, but atheists as well. Evolutionist and atheist Richard Loughton said life forms are more than simply multiple and diverse. However, organisms fit remarkably well into the external world in which they live. They have moroglophicology philosophies and behaviors that appear to have been carefully and artfully designed to enable each organism to appropriate the world around it for its own life. 
It was the marvellous fit of organisms to the environment, much more than the great diversity of forms that was the chief evidence of a supreme designer. You have an atheist sitting here and saying, I apologize for butchering that quote, by the way, but you have an atheist sitting here and telling you that organisms in life are created in such a way and fit together in such a way that it shows and exemplifies the evidence that there is somebody who created it all. I think something that's really interesting, though, is that if you look at it from a biblical point of view, human beings are the center. Everything, the world that was created, was created for humans. But everything was created by God. Every thing that exists was created by God. So it's not only humans that have intelligent designs. Though humans have incredibly intelligent designs, did you know that the brain can store roughly 10 billion gigabytes of data? I don't know if you knew that, but I think that's really interesting. Every living creature that was on the earth, past, present, and even future, is something that was created and exemplified in such a way that shows that it had been designed. And the only evidence for that de- designer is that of God. I mean, the idea that a human being can evolve from a microscopic organism over time and time and generations and a long, ex- a long period of time, human beings, you have a microscopic organism, a single-celled amoeba that evolves into a multi-celled amoeba that evolves into a bacteria that just continues evolving until eventually... pardon me, you get a human being. Why is that easier to believe than an intelligent designer that made everything a specific way for a specific purpose? I mean, specific purposes make sense. Human beings are one of the most advanced creatures, not the most advanced, but one of the most advanced creatures that exists on the entire earth. And evolutionists say that that was simply chance, that human beings, homo sapiens, happened to evolve in such a way that gave them this leg up against the rest of the rest of creation. Why does that make more sense than the fact that there is a designer out there who made human beings exactly the way that they were supposed to be, in just a way that they were the ones who advanced the most technologically, um mentally, in in every, consciously, in every way that you possibly could advance, human beings have advanced just so. And I think that it's really interesting that it's easier for people to say, oh, it just happened via evolution, rather than looking into the idea of God. Now, the last argument is the moral argument, and this argument is a bit of a precarious one to discuss, because there are some ideas that are kind of put into this argument that some people don't like thinking about. Um, This idea is pretty much that moral law is something that can only be bestowed by God. The morality that people have is something that was given to humanity from God. And that if you don't, if, if you try, how do I explain this? Everybody has a sense of right and wrong, but for some people, where that line is 
kind of shifts. It's not a very clear, not a very clear line. But if you follow God's laws and God's rules, you have set objective morals. The only people that really don't have a sense of right and wrong are people with some sort of mental disability that doesn't allow them to reach that mate mentally or to have that kind of understanding. Those people this doesn't apply to because they don't have an understanding of it. But most people on the face of the earth have an understanding of the difference between right and wrong. Without God's laws, there is no objective basis for morality. If we look at the Bible, it's very clear. In Romans, chapter 7, verse 8, Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, Which shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. What he's saying is, he's in this context, he's pretty much explaining that we are no longer bound to the law of Moses that was written in the Old Testament. However, the law is still key because the law explains the things that are forbidden. It explains, yes, we are not bound to sacrifices and, and all of these things that the, the Jews were doing in the Old Testament, but we can still look at that law and see what are things that we should and shouldn't do. We can easily see where the line is drawn. Atheists don't really have objective morality. And even some of them would argue that objective morality is dangerous. Let me propose a hypothetical to you. If aliens came to Earth and they said to you, you have to kill five babies in front of their parents to save everyone on Earth, would you do it? The man in this situation said yes. The hypothetical went on. What if it was ten babies? Yes. Fifty? Yes. A hundred. For eight billion people on Earth, you had to kill a hundred infants in front of their parents. And the man once again said yes. The number kept growing and growing and growing, and every single time the man said yes. The problem that I have with this idea is where do you draw the line? At what point does the good that you do from saving the eight billion people outweigh the bad of killing infants in front of their parents and scarring them for life? Atheist and ex-pastor Dan Barker explains that morals come from doing what causes the least amount of pain or the most good in any situation. But even that idea is completely subjective. Even if it was to save 8 billion people, I'm sure the parents of those 100 babies would be very unhappy that you had killed their children. And they'd be quite traumatized. Um, in a debate with uh, Dan Barker and Kyle Butt, a very similar hypothetical was proposed, but instead of murdering babies, it was rape. Um, I changed it to murdering babies simply because that seemed less graphic. I don't know. You know, I know killing babies is still graphic, but raping women is something that seems a little bit too graphic. But the point still stands, no matter which hypothetical you use. Christians have no need to fear death. If an individual is saved by the grace of God, then they don't need to be afraid. Death is simply a, a homecoming of sorts. You know, atheists need to cling to the idea of life because they don't believe that anything is next. Once you die, you die, that's it, it's over. Everything you did while you were alive and while you were on earth was the most that you were ever going to do and that is what makes up your life. But Christians, Christians don't believe that. Christians believe that your life on earth is the tiniest, most minuscule 
in the words of that cosmological scientist, literally nothing in terms of all of eternity that you are going to spend in paradise, or torment, depending. The moral argument really tries to explain that in order for there to be a sense of right and wrong, in order for there to be a law, there has to be a lawgiver. That lawgiver being God. And yes, I know, killing eight billion people is not ideal, or good in any sense of the word, but the problem isn't that I don't, or Christians, don't want to save the eight billion people, but the means to do it. At what point do you draw the line between I am doing good and I am doing bad? At what point is it too many babies, as it were? At what point is it too many people that were killed or hurt or tormented to save other people? I know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And I'm, well, I don't believe that you go directly to heaven. Rather, I believe I'm going to go to paradise. So I have no need to cling to my life on earth. There, there is no, there, that's not a necessity for me or for anyone who believes in God and, and follows God. There is no need to cling to the life that you have on earth because it is simply a stepping stone towards eternity. As I said, um, there has to be a lawgiver in order for there to be a law. Now, th that was the last of the arguments. And I simply touched the tip of the iceberg on each of these arguments. And even I can't really conduct myself in a way that can truly exemplify the importantness, I guess is the best way to say it, of each of these arguments. If you'd like to read more, then I would recommend you go read a book entitled The Case for the Existence of God by Bert Thompson. He goes very in-depth into each of these arguments and he quotes atheists, he quotes theists, he pretty much explains very well every part of these arguments. You can read it over at Apologetics Press, no they are not a sponsor, but Apologetics Press has very good material if you're looking to learn more about the Christian faith. Now I know what you're sitting there and thinking. You're thinking these philosophical arguments are the best you can do in terms of proof for God? No, they're not. I know. But they aren't. There are some less philosophical proofs for God's existence. And in order to avoid having this episode be an hour long, I am only going to touch on two scientific facts that lay in the Bible as a truth of God's existence and two prophecies in the Bible that came true. Like I said, this is simply going to touch the surface, but there are many, many more. And if you want to learn more than you absolutely should, you should go in depth, read, your, read the Bible. I know that sounds ridiculous, but the best source of information about Christianity is found in the Bible and do some research. The first prophecy that came true out of the Bible was the fall of Tyre. In 597 BC, a man named Ezekiel in the Bible proclaimed that the city of Tyre would fall. At this time, Tyre was one of the most secure cities in the whole world, so much so that they had an island that the citizens could go to in case there was an attack. The city gets attacked and they hop on boats and they go over to the island and, oh, they're safe. The city gets burned down, but at least they're safe, right? And, yeah, they did that. Ezekiel claimed that Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, would destroy many villages, that he would build a siege mound, but he wouldn't quite make it. Instead, there'd be many nations that came up against Tyre before a fall. That the city would become flattened, and that the stone and timber and soil that was used to build the city would be laid into the sea. 
These can be found in Ezekiel chapters 26 through 28 in the Bible, if you want to find a biblical point in which these are referenced. History shows that Nebuchadnezzar did in fact come up against Tyre and did exactly as predicted. Once he built the siege mound, the citizens moved out of the to the island where they couldn't be attacked. Now, in 330 BC, Alexander the Great attacked Tyre, and once again the citizens left. Alexander was really not happy with the fact that he couldn't get to them, though, and so he scraped together all the timber and the stone and the soil from all of the buildings, and he threw it into the sea and created a path to the island known as Alexander's Causeway. Ezekiel accurately predicted something that happened more than 250 years in the future from the prophecy. I think that's amazing. The next prophecy we're going to discuss is the fall of Babylon. Like Tyre, it was one of the most secure cities in its time, around 720 BC. Not only did they have incredible walls that were like 65 feet thick and like four stories tall, they were huge. But it was surrounded by the Euphrates River, which created a moat around it. Both the prophets Jeremiah and Isaiah prophesied that nations would come against Babylon. This is originally mentioned in Jeremiah 59, if you want to look. Jeremiah even went as far as to say that God would dry up her seas. That's quoted from Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 36. He foretold that a drought would come and dry up the waters. Jeremiah 50 and 38. He said that they would become drunk at feasts and sleep. It's described as a perpetual sleep. Jeremiah 51 and 39. History teaches that the Euphrates River went under the city of Babylon and King Cyrus came upon Babylon, redirected the river, causing all of the water to flow into the basin. He marched his troops right under the wall into Babylon and when this was happening, the Babylonians were drunk from their feasts and they slept. There are many more prophecies where this came from. For example, the hundreds of messianic prophecies that existed. As a short explanation, the messianic prophecy is a prophecy about the Messiah, i.e. Jesus. If you didn't know. This was just simply to show you that the Bible is a very trustworthy source of information. I mean, all of these events happened years apart from when they were prophesied. But it's not only prophecies that came true in the Bible. There are also two major, that I'm going to touch on, though there are many more, facts that came true. Not that came true, but scientific facts that appear, pardon, in the Bible. I don't know if you know this, but the way that George Washington, the first president of the United States, died is a pretty funny story. A little bit after he stepped down from being president, and what I mean by that is that he didn't run for another term, he fell very ill with a cold. At this time, it was standard medical practice to remove portions of blood until the patient got better. It was believed that these illnesses, these viruses, these colds, were housed in the blood. The blood had gone bad. Well, it's a well-known medical fact today that bad blood doesn't cause illnesses. It's viruses, germs, bacteria, the sorts. However, this idea that bad blood simply doesn't cause illnesses, is also in the Bible. The book of Leviticus was written about 1446 to 1406 BC. In Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11, Moses makes the statement that the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
Not only this, but a couple of verses later in verse 14, he writes, For the life of all flesh is the blood. It seems so obvious to us now that the life of a body and a person comes from them having blood in them. But the top medical scientists in the 17 and 1800s did not know this. If they'd only opened their Bibles and read this, they would have known that by draining blood out of somebody's body, you could kill them. The second scientific fact that we're going to touch on has to deal with sanitization. Especially now, in this time of COVID, we know how important it is to keep everything sanitized and clean, and how the failure to do so can result in some pretty serious illnesses. This wasn't always a commonly known fact, though. In the 1800s, around 1840, there was a cholera outbreak in London that led to the death of thousands of people, and the doctors simply couldn't figure out how to help them. This outbreak of cholera was due to the fact that citizens would dump their feces from their their buckets, from their chamber pots, out of their window into the streets. Modern science could tell you now that we know that feces carries germs and bacteria, but modern scientists weren't the first to hear about this idea. Moses, again, writes in Deuteronomy chapter 13, no, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 12 through 13, that thou shalt have a place also without the camp, whereeth thou shalt go forth abroad, and thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon. It shall be with thou wilt ease abroad. Thou shalt dig therein, and shalt turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. In terms that make sense to us now, pretty much, you go away from your camp, you take a paddle, dig a hole, you, you crap in it pretty much, you cover it back up, and you walk away. This idea is clear to us now. I mean, we don't need to do that anymore because we have toilets, but if you go camping, you poop in a hole. It's common knowledge away from the camp. How is it that an idea that was really first explained in 1400 BC, information that people had 3,000 years before the outbreak of cholera, that science didn't even know yet. The only explanation, the only logical explanation, is that through divine enlightenment, people like Moses were able to have this information and write it down. Like I mentioned at the start of this episode, the point here wasn't really to try to convert you to Christianity, though I doubt that if you were an atheist you'd be listening to this podcast. But the idea isn't, as I said, to convert you. It's to give some of the evidence that I believe is key to understanding God and to believing in God. If you want more information, you can, like I said, go read the book from earlier, or read The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. It's a very good book. Honestly, I don't think we're ever going to get definitive without a shadow of a doubt proof of God, as people would think, or people would want, rather. Like a picture of God like you get with Sasquatch in the woods. That's never going to be something that we have. Until Jesus comes back again, we're never going to know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, what even atheists have to stand in awe at the Creator. Or until we die. But I think that sharing this information is important. The fact that believing in God and believing in the Bible doesn't need to be void of proof or of, of scientific backing. 
In fact, science and creation and God and the Bible go hand in hand. As well as history. The Bible is historically accurate in numerous, numerous, numerous cases. Now, I'm not going to go too in-depth into that, but if you look at the Gospels, specifically Matthew, Mark, and John, they go very in-depth on the life of Jesus and historical documents and historical writers that we have seen kind of align very well with the Gospels in terms of the life of Jesus, because Jesus was a real person. Whether or not you believe he was the Messiah and the Son of God, that's another thing, but he was, in fact, a real person. So I thought that talking a little bit about why I believe personally in the Bible and the, the evidences that I have for that would be a good place to start. Um, thank you for joining me today. I hope to see all your faces next week. And until then, this is Shepard signing off.